Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg. And I'm Eve Johallen. In each episode of this podcast, we use books as a way to explore questions that fascinate us. And in this episode, we consider what makes us human. It's a question we keep coming back to here on Book Dreams because, of course, it's the ultimate existential query and it's got no definitive answer. Today, we're exploring what makes us human with two experts, anthropologist Gregory Forth and archaeologist Rebecca Rag Sykes. Okay. I want you to close your eyes for a minute and picture a small island, just one among thousands in an archipelago that has no name because we've traveled back in time 50,000 years. The island is mountainous and volcanic with rainforests that teem with life. Although it seems like nothing is the right size. There are elephants the size of cows, lizards the size of dragons, storks the size of grown men and men the size of young children. Oh, and also giant rats, of course. It's the stuff of children's books, or at least I thought so when I first heard about it. Except the island is real, and so were all the creatures I just mentioned. Today, the island is called Flores, and you'll find it in Indonesia. The giant rats and Komodo dragons are still there, but all the other fantastical beings are extinct. Or are they? In 2003, archaeologists unearthed the remains of ancient homonyms in a cave on Flores Island called Liangbua. Homonyms are the evolutionary group that includes modern humans, extinct human species, and all of our immediate ancestors. The homonyms whose remains were found on Flores were short, about three to three and a half feet, or the height of a modern five-year-old, and they had big feet, so you can understand why they were quickly nicknamed hobbits. Their official name is Homo floresiensis. They walked upright and had big jaws and teeth, no chins, and sloping foreheads. Their brains were smaller than ours, more like chimpanzees, but they knew how to hunt those pygmy elephants and giant rats, and they may have made stone tools and used fire. At first, scientists believed that they lived as recently as 13,000 years ago, which is essentially yesterday, if you think in terms of geological time. Now we know that Homo floresiensis lived 50,000 years ago, which is still astonishingly recent. It means that Homo floresiensis were among the last surviving non-Homo sapien homonyms that we know of, along with Neanderthals and Denisovans. I first heard about the Hobbits in 2004 when I read the New York Times article that announced their discovery. The article mentioned 16th century Portuguese traders who claimed to have glimpsed, quote, little people on the shores of Flores when they sailed past. By the time I put down the paper, I was already thinking, dragons, elephants, and hobbits. What if two early modern kids get shipwrecked on an island they think is deserted, except it turns out to be inhabited by Homo floresiensis? I was working on another book at the time, so I put a copy of the article in a file and returned to it every time I had a new idea or came across some new piece of information related to The Hobbits. Finally, sometime around 2009, I started research on what would become my book Cast Off. I spent four years researching Homo floresiensis and also researching our closest living relatives, the great apes, trying to answer that question, what makes us human? I went to Indonesia and hung out with orangutans. 
I attended scientific conferences where I only understood about 60% of what people were talking about. I interviewed paleoanthropologists, and of course, I read a ton of books. Cut to a few months ago when we heard about Gregory Forth's new book, Between Ape and Human, an anthropologist on the trail of a hidden hominoid. Greg has been doing ethnographic fieldwork on Flores since 1984, and during his very first visit, his host told him that hundreds of years ago, there had been ape men living in a cave up on the local volcano. Two months before archaeologists discovered Homo floresiensis remains, Greg learned that there are many people alive on Flores today who believe that small, not-quite-ape not-quite-human creatures called Laihoa still live there in the forests. Some people even claim to have seen them or to know people who have seen them. One account is as recent as 2018. Greg's book is about these witness accounts and about whether it's possible that the stories are true. I think it took me about 30 seconds to send an email to you and Gianfranco that said something like, Please, you have to understand, I have a reproduction of a Homo floresiensis skull that lives on a shelf in my bathroom that's one of my most beloved possessions. We stare at each other every time I brush my teeth. Can we please, please try to interview Gregory Forth? And Gianfranco and I were like, no, sorry. Just kidding. (laughs) Of course, we said yes immediately. And we were so excited when Greg agreed to talk to us. He received his doctorate at Oxford and was a professor of anthropology at the University of Alberta for more than three decades. He's a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada and is the author of more than 100 scholarly papers and several academic books. Unfortunately, we had a massive tech fail during our interview, and much of our audio is unusable. But we do have Greg describing what Homo floresiensis looked like, followed by how residents of Flores described what the Laihoa looked like. Take a listen. The arms were proportionally long, or looked so, because the um, the legs were uh, proportionally uh, short. The feet were, again, proportionally uh, big. They're also flat-footed, so they didn't walk like us. The wrists are peculiar. The wrists most closely resemble chimpanzees in terms of, you know, primate uh, comparison. The shoulder configuration is different, which made the arms, the relatively long arms, turn sort of forward. They weren't actually hunched or, or stooped. One can't say that, but they would rather have looked that way, I think, to anybody observing one. And they had protruding jaws, uh, rather like an ape, very heavy brow ridges and and, uh, ridges at at the side of the eyes. They had uh, um, other kinds of bumps and bulges (laughs) um, from bones that would distinguish them from uh, certainly from a modern human. Let's talk specifically about the Laihoa, the ape men who most closely resemble Floresiensis. You heard about them through the Leo people in the Leo region of Flores. Can you paint a picture of the Laihoa for us? You know, what do they look like and how do they behave? They look like uh, human beings, especially in terms of facial features. They, they uh show a distinct resemblance to uh, apes. In fact, what many people say quite directly is that they look sort of halfway, midway between uh, apes and modern uh, modern humans. They stand erect 
Some people say they're slightly stooped, and, and they speak of them as uh, holding their arms uh, um, at a kind of a 90-degree angle, as it were, mm -hmm. with the, the hands uh, slightly forward and the wrists uh, limp, and, and, and walking in that way as well. Well, that's not similar at all. Definitely not. So, so Greg lays out four possibilities for the Laihoa in his book. One, they're still alive and they're direct descendants of Homo floresiensis. Two, they're still alive and they're descendants of some other early species of hominin. In fact, there's evidence of another kind of hominin on Flores that goes back 700,000 years. Or three, they're purely imaginary. And four, they're misrepresentations of monkeys or some kind of undiscovered ape. We asked Greg which scenario he thought was most likely, and he hedged a bit. He conceded that options three and four, you know, they're imaginary or they're misrepresentations of monkeys or apes. Those are by far the most logical and likely scenarios. But he also stressed that it's a fact that a number of people on Flores claim to have seen something or someone that bears an uncanny resemblance to Homo floresiensis, and that he started hearing about those accounts before the discovery of Homo floresiensis remains on the island. Greg spends a great deal of time in his book distinguishing the unreliable witnesses from the credible ones, and he also notes that the way the people of Flores think about and talk about the Laihoa is very different from how they view supernatural beings like witches and vine mothers that are part of their folklore and religious traditions. Greg also notes in his book that, quote, not only in biology, but equally in my own discipline of anthropology, there is currently no body of theory that accommodates mystery hominoids, at least none that allows for their possible existence. If accepted as probable or plausible accounts of real creatures, what people say about the hominoids presents a challenge to zoology and paleoanthropology. I find this idea really interesting, that there's no framework within some established scientific thinking for considering a possibility that upends that thinking, and so we don't allow for the possibility. Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly there are plenty of examples of bias of many kinds derailing scientific inquiry. Right. But whether Homo floresiensis are alive today, or, as is more likely, they died out tens of thousands of years ago, we still have much to learn about their abilities and their way of life. And unfortunately, there's a dearth of physical evidence. So far, just one mostly complete Homo floresiensis body and remains from 11 other individuals have been found in just one cave. These remains date between 100,000 and 50,000 years ago. Logic dictates that the population must have existed both earlier and later, but how much earlier and how much later? There's just so much we don't know and can't infer. Yes, but by contrast, we know much, much more about Neanderthals, another hominin. Since their discovery in 1856, archaeologists have found thousands of specimens from hundreds of individuals, as well as tools, hearths, food remains, and other physical evidence, all of which add up to a remarkably detailed portrait of a species that's radically different from our old notions of, you know, grunting cavemen wielding heavy clubs. So Neanderthals emerged between 350 and 400,000 years ago, and they disappeared about 40,000 years ago, which meant that they overlapped with Homo floresiensis, although there's no evidence to suggest that the two hominins ever actually crossed paths. Neanderthals lived in Western Eurasia, so in Europe, the Near East, Central Asia, and parts of Siberia. 
If you met a Neanderthal at a party, you probably wouldn't think they were Homo sapien. They had sloping foreheads and no chins, and they had a small bump on the back of their heads called an occipital bun. They were, on average, shorter than we are, more powerfully built, muscular, heavy-boned, and barrel-chested, and they walked fully upright, no hunching or knuckle-dragging at all. Compared to us, they had bigger eyes and noses. And there's a very cool possible reason for the big noses. Those dense bodies required a lot of fuel, about 5,000 to 6,000 calories a day. Bigger nostrils meant more oxygen. Neanderthals could take in twice as much oxygen as we can. But don't be fooled by their looks. Those sloping foreheads protected huge brains capable of highly complex thinking, and their brawny limbs were capable of exquisite fine motor coordination. Rebecca has so much more to tell us about Neanderthals. We'll just share a few words about her before we go to the interview. Rebecca Rag Sykes is an authority on Neanderthals. Her doctoral thesis, awarded in 2010, was the first synthesis of evidence for late Neanderthals in Britain. She's an archaeologist, author, and honorary fellow in the School of Archaeology, Classics, and Egyptology at the University of Liverpool. Her critically acclaimed and best-selling first book, Kindred, Neanderthal Life, Love, Death, and Art, is a deep dive into the 21st century science and understanding of these ancient relatives. Kindred won the 2021 Penn Hessel Tiltman Prize for History, was awarded Book of the Year by Current Archaeology, and was selected as one of 2021's 100 Notable Books by the New York Times and a Book of the Year by the Sunday Times. We started Really Big Picture and asked Rebecca to tell us why we should care about extinct hominins. Here's what she said. Well, there's, there's kind of not very many bigger questions you can ask than, you know, where do we come from mm-hmm. and where might we be going? <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, on all sorts of levels, examining and questioning and learning about the other kinds of hominins, other sorts of humans that have lived has implications and relevance, you know, from things to do with how our bodies work, medical things like that, all the way through to, you know, why do we think the way we do? Why do we have such an obsession with making stuff compared to all the other animals in the world? You know, there's just so many angles from which it provides endless fascination, I think. It seems like almost everything we grew up believing about Neanderthals is wrong. And it turns out they were about as far from bumbling, animalistic cavemen as Homo sapiens are. Their abilities and way of life were far more sophisticated than we ever imagined even 20 years ago. Can you describe for us what it was like to be a Neanderthal? I guess in terms of you know, what was <laughs> what was an everyday Neanderthal's life like? Well, actually, that is a really good point upon which to, I guess, express the fact that there wasn't just one way of being a Neanderthal, actually, mm-hmm. because they lived over a very long span of time. So from about 350,000 years ago to only about 40,000 years ago, that temporal span includes many different cycles of climate change so people always associate them with you know like the ice age world like mammoths and all this kind of thing and that's true they did live during times when it was much colder than now when most of eurasia was steppe tundra or some boreal forest but they also did live during times 
like now when it's much warmer and not only is there sort of this climate curve shifting the the worlds that they actually experience but you've also got that geographic range you know the life of a neanderthal during a glacial period a cold period in wales where i am right now is going to be really different to the life of a neanderthal living during one of these warm climate phases called interglacials say in iberia you know mm-hmm. where you're going to be in warm forests of oak olives there's tortoises wandering around there's cicadas in the trees you know so it's really difficult to say what was an average neanderthal like the only thing i think that unites how they all may have experienced their lives on an everyday scale is that they're hunting and gathering people Mm -hmm. so their lives are focused on getting food um, and that's not grown food there's no agriculture um, fire is important to them we've got really good evidence from many different sites that hearths little fireplaces were the center around which they did sort of all different activities when they were staying at one place so the idea of hearth as the center of home is actually part of the neanderthal world as well And I guess the third thing, of course, is their technology. There's variation in in their stone tool technology through time and across space. But overall, making and using stone tools is a central part of Neanderthal life whenever and wherever we look. Mm -hmm. Mm. And those tools were very sophisticated. I mean, they were comparable to what Homo sapiens were making and... I mean, I was fascinated when you talked about how the spears that they made were even, how did you describe it, either off-balanced or off-center, because uh-huh. that made them more accurate for throwing and, you know, all kinds of sophisticated differences in the kinds of carving tools that they made, not just with stone, but with other materials like wood and bone. Am I remembering that correctly? <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. I guess one of the things that was persistent for quite a while, maybe 30, 40 years ago even, there was a an idea that Neanderthals were just not very good at making stuff and that they just did the same thing the whole time they were around and like there was virtually no innovation or, you know, inventiveness within themselves as a broad population. And that's incredibly unfair, really. Um, they were very sophisticated and very systematic in the means with which they made stone tools. So you have like a core, a, a lump of rock, and we can see that they had at their disposal many different ways of actually taking that apart. So producing flakes of different shapes with different potential qualities. Um, and they were really, really focused on exactly what they wanted and that's just stone you know like you mentioned the spears there's the same kind of impression that they're selecting different kinds of wood in some situations and not just for spears also digging sticks which don't sound quite as exciting as spears but in fact they're very important everyday objects for living they're choosing like the hardest woods around for the digging sticks because it makes the most sense that it's the most robust and with the spears They are choosing not only the tree species, but they're focusing in on taking the wood from the base of the trunk or the base of the branches, because again, it's the most robust. And when they actually carve the spears, they sort of carve slightly offset away from the grain of the wood so that if you cast a spear and it hits, it's less likely to split. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit like the more we examine 
how they make stuff, the clearer it is that they had all sorts of different standards and methods for making things that they could choose from and apply in different circumstances. It's incredible to think that much of what we know about Neanderthals is thanks to improvements in the research techniques from just the last 30 years. There are new technologies that have allowed scientists to analyze stone, bone, and DNA, and then to use that information to reconstruct not just what daily life was like, but what happened around a particular campfire on a particular day 100,000 years ago. Check this out. We know what people ate that day, not just because of a few tiny fragments retrieved from the hearth, but also because of the isotopes on a single tooth from a single individual. Those isotopes can tell us what the individual ate throughout their lifetime, including how long they were breastfed. And then based on the animals and plants the individual ate, we can track the geographic locations where they lived over the course of their lifetime. Yeah, absolutely amazing. I'm also amazed by how different Neanderthals were from what I'd always imagined. You know, they were innovators and explorers, crafting and wielding sophisticated tools that they decorated with artistic flourishes. They were accomplished hide workers. They sometimes used animal hides as walls and floor mats in their homes, and they almost certainly used them for clothes. They were meticulous, highly skilled butchers, and they stored food, probably drying it out or maybe even smoking or fermenting it. There's even strong evidence that they had a written notation system for counting, a kind of tally system etched into bone that allowed for adding to or changing the running total. The cognitive implications of these abilities make the distance between Neanderthals and Homo sapiens feel a lot smaller. Next, we asked Rebecca what Neanderthals could likely do that Homo sapiens can't, and also what Homo sapiens can do that Neanderthals likely couldn't do. Here's what she said. In terms of sort of technology or culture and things like this, one thing that the Antitals do seem to have done is invented birch tar, which is a kind of glue that you basically have to cook out of birch bark from a tree. And although early Homo sapiens people in African contexts were also making adhesives to you know to make multi-part tools and they were using plant resins and mixing things together and stuff like this there's no sort of comparable practice where they are cooking the tar out of a bark in the way that you have to with birch tar so on a cognitive basis that's really quite interesting that neanderthals are doing that yeah part of the reason that that's a hard question to answer is the limits of what we know but it also seems like part of the struggle to answer that is because there may not be a long list of things. So, for example, we don't know if Neanderthals could speak, but you said in your book, there's no reason physiologically why they couldn't. And there is evidence that suggests that they probably could. So it's interesting to me how close we are as opposed to how far apart we used to think that we are. That's absolutely true. And I think that's one of the things from the past few decades that basically a lot of the areas where we thought there was a large gap in what they did or their cognitive capacity or potential, those gaps have shrunk. And that's to do with the way that we have you know, understood things or from the genetics or because we just found new things in, <laughs> in our sites, as well as having a new perspective. And all of that, that's like a feedback loop as well. The closer 
we see that they actually were, our expectations also change about how we, you know, interpret new finds and stuff like that. So yeah, we definitely do think that some kind of vocal communication was really important at an everyday level for Neanderthals. We don't know the informational content in that, but some sort of talking is very, very likely to have been going on. Um, yeah. But the other thing that I think has, I guess, emerged as a potential cognitive difference is related to um, the complexity of the technology as a whole. So yes, Neanderthals were using birch tar, but Homo sapiens people in Africa seem to have had a range of more complicated, maybe more complex adhesive recipes where they're adding more bits, more stages, and probably already by 80,000 years ago, they may have been using either really lightweight spears and darts or bow and arrow, which we don't see, we think, in Neanderthals. So that is a, a, a technological difference, which obviously has hunting implications. And alongside that, there's sort of been a really interesting phenomenon where although we have now got quite a good range of evidence that Neanderthals had an aesthetic interest in materials, so like beyond just function, they were also interested in the potential of altering objects or materials or surfaces, for example, by applying mineral pigment colour to it. But when you look at what Homo sapiens people are doing, they're doing that too, but it's like hyped up. Mm -hmm. Instead of one shell with with red pigment on it in the Antitel site, in a Homo sapiens site, you've got loads of them. Or, you know, instead of a one piece with some engraved lines on it in the Antitel site, in the Homo sapiens sites in Africa, you know, you have a series of these objects through layers in a site. So you can see what Homo sapiens are doing is kind of just leveled up, if you want to put it like that. And that may have had or, you know, be reflecting differences to do with social networks and the social use of this material culture with it, with aesthetic value to it in terms of group identity and the ability to maintain social networks at a much larger scale. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You say in the book, while minds create things, things also create minds in a manner that extends far beyond the individual or even the generation and can transform whole species. Can you give us an example to explain what you mean by this? So, for example, with adhesives, the ability to understand adhesion as a property and to look for that and to make it implies that you understand the concept of sticking things together <laughs> in right. a basic sense. And there are other things where you join concepts together, one of which is language. Syntax is where words are joined together. If you have compound technology, multi-part tools, could that actually be part of a feedback mechanism between different parts of the brain relating to how things are materially made, planning those projects, seeing those things in your mind as something that you could even do, and then connecting through to other things in your life where you join things together, language, words, collaborative projects, the idea of working with others. So in that sense, how we make things is also about how things make us and how there is 
you know, new potentials emerge from new materials. What have you learned about what it means to be human by studying Neanderthals? I guess, I guess my impression is that we seem to be far more focused on making stuff on just producing things we're like in love with materials like mm-hmm. you can see neanderthals were really focused on on high quality things you know in in using the good stuff and they're well aware of different properties but we homo sapiens just seem to be unable to stop making things and wanting material objects you know the aesthetics of things the prettiness of things or the shininess of things we're kind of a bit magpie-ish i guess is what i'm trying to say mm-hmm. um and I, I suppose one of the other things that really is quite clear is our desire to believe that the reason we are here and the Antels are not is because we did something right. And I don't really think that that's it's not as simple as that. You know, um, yes, there's things that that we appear to have been better at or able to do that Neanderthals couldn't do. But on a geological timescale and an evolutionary timescale in terms of who gets extinct and who doesn't, it doesn't always relate to just cleverness. It can actually be about contingency and chance a lot more than we might like to think. Yeah. Now, you refer to Homo floresiensis a number of times in your book, And Flores has a long history of folklore about creatures called Laihoa that bear an uncanny resemblance to Homo floresiensis. And in fact, many people who live on Flores believe to this day that there are still Laihoa alive on the island, and people have claimed to have seen them as recently as 2018. So I'm wondering, do you think that there is a possibility greater than 0% that Homo floresiensis lived on Flores until the modern era or, you know, say within the last 500 years? Could that have actually happened? I would say probably not within the last 500 years, but I think what's becoming obvious is that oral histories held and maintained by all sorts of indigenous communities around the world can often have far deeper roots than has been assumed. You know, there are various instances, and I mentioned some of them in the book, to do with landscape change, you know, rising of sea levels, things like this, you know, 10,000 years ago or twice that or even more that seem to be part of these indigenous histories. It gives me chills to think that some of the stories we still tell today have roots that go back tens of thousands of years. You know, the more I learn about the distant past, the closer it seems to me, and the closer I feel to our ancient ancestors, both Homo sapien and otherwise. That question we keep returning to, what does it mean to be human? I feel like it gets harder to answer, not easier, the more I know. Rebecca makes the point in her book that Neanderthals and Denisovans and maybe other homonyms that we don't know about yet haven't really died out because they're living inside many of us today in our DNA. Neanderthals mated with Denisovans and both groups mated with Homo sapiens. 
So if you have European or Asian ancestry, you've got more than one homonym within you. Okay, this is the part where I need to interrupt you to show off that my brother-in-law did one of those DNA analysis things. And it turns out my husband has about twice the average amount of Neanderthal DNA as most people of European descent. So um, yeah, my husband and our children are very Neanderthal. Wow, yeah. I always wondered about Nick's love of birch tar. That's where it comes from. (laughs) He just loves birch tar. I think that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Rebecca at rebeccaragsykes.com and on Twitter at L-E-M-O-U-S-T-I-E-R. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eviohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julia.